Lord, make the story come alive. I come against the routine. I come against monotony. I come against that this is just what I do. This is tradition. I come to church every Sunday. I listen to music. I listen to sermons. Lord, we come against that. Father, give us a fresh word this morning. Lord, anoint these words that I will speak. I'm powerless to make any change in anyone's life, Lord. It's, it's, it's all you. Lord, I, give, I ask that there be a passion in people's hearts this Christmas season to read your word. Make every character, not just this character, but every character come alive in a new way. Give us divine eyes. Amen. I, I came across, a, uh, I came across a, a book recently from another author. He had talked about this. and The name of the book is Medieval Views of the Cosmos. Medieval views of the cosmos. Does that sound like light reading? No. Um, I didn't bring my book in here this morning because I was worried that somebody would steal it. It's, it's, the book was written in 2008, and I was worried once I mentioned it that some... I'm being facetious. You're looking at me like I'm really... Do you really think I'm going to bring in medieval views of the cosmos and that somebody is really going to want to bet up and you're going to steal it? Because you're in a church, and if you stole it from a church, that would raise some other questions. But I read this book and it was fascinating, not just because I'm a history teacher, but when you look at church and some of the things, one of the things the author pointed out was that in the Middle Ages, maps served a much different purpose than they would later on or that they actually serve for us today. Uh, People during the Middle Ages, they didn't use maps to try to navigate and figure out where they were going. You see, maps during that time period were much different. People were getting a world view, not not looking at on a map, where am I going? Not where am I in the world? They were actually getting a large world view of what was really going on. What was history pointing towards? And what was wild about that, I'm going to wade through a little bit of history in the beginning. I hope you can stay with me. If you're awake after 10 minutes, we're in good shape. And I love the first sentence of the book. Once upon a time, the world had meaning. The world used to have meaning. And the truth, though, is that maps really aren't wholly neutral. I don't know how many of you have ever thought of this. You look at a map. Maps are biased. Why are maps biased? You look at a map. Who is always on top on the map? The United States. You have Europe on top of the map. Why is Latin America on the bottom? Why is Africa on the bottom? Because the people that came up that drew these maps, that's where they were from. Right? You never probably once ever thought of that. Wow, that's weird, interesting that the United States, we're on the top. Latin America's on the bottom. No, maps are biased. And I'm saying that to you t- because you need to see a worldview this morning as we get it, as we plow into this story. And speaking of maps, though, I had to, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out a map of the United States from a New York perspective. I don't know how many, maybe you've seen this online before. This is the United States of America as seen by a New Yorker. I don't know how many, if you can see all the things, Montana, empty space before getting to the real South, where they shot the show Cops. Like, it's a really funny, you don't find it as funny as I did. (laughs) But it's really funny, and they, in this book, they have different maps of, like, what does a Californian look, when they look at the map of the U.S., now you're getting it, some of you, I see you talking to the person next to you, 
Pretty interesting. I'm going to take that off because you're too into the map and you're not listening to what I'm saying now. <laughs> you want me to go back for a second? Okay. So the map is more interesting than anything I have to say. Why don't I just leave it up for 40 minutes and you can stare at it and study it? And I'll give you a test at the end. Is that what you want? <laughs> no, now I'm really taking the map away. <laughs> and so that is a map. Why am I? I shouldn't have put that map up probably because it's taking away from my point. Now, when you looked at medieval maps, when you looked at medieval maps, maps from the Middle Ages, something is really interesting. Because on almost all of the maps, you would see this. Oops. The picture is not there. I added it this morning. You can't see it. That's terrible for you. That's okay, though. I will just tell you. On all of the maps from the Middle Ages... Oh, no. I don't want... Stop. Stop it with that map. It's going to torture me in my sleep tonight. On all of the maps from the Middle Ages, you would have, in the middle of the map, geographically speaking, you would have Jerusalem. Interesting. Jerusalem is not geographically in the middle of the... It should not be in the middle of the map. It was in the middle of the map because everybody during that time period knew and understood something. That time was pointing towards something that is glorious. And you must see that the people of Israel, they had a belief that not only Jerusalem, but particularly the temple in Jerusalem was this holy place. It was the holiest place on this planet. And this was the place, the temple was the place where God dwelled. And it was at the temple that they believed, any Israelite believed, somebody in the Middle Ages, they understood this. This is where God was going to reoccupy. A movement was going to start. It would start in this temple where God dwelled. And eventually, as time went on, it would branch out for everybody. But everybody knew, and everybody venerated, and they worshipped at this temple because that's where God's presence was. Everybody knew that. Any good Israelite, that's what they did, and they understood it. And let me tell you, when you look at our world today, you must see and understand that God is looking to, and God will reoccupy everything on this planet, whether it's Wall Street, whether it's Madison Avenue, whether it's Hollywood, that God will take everything back. And the glory that was there just in the temple is going to be across this earth. It'll permeate every single square inch of this planet. And long before there was an Occupy Wall Street movement that was dreamt up from somebody, God had the idea. He said, I will occupy. I am coming back for my people, and my glory will spread all over the world. It's the good news. But you have to see New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Some of us had the pleasure of listening to N.T. Wright. If he spoke for... How long did he, I mean, one of the most intelligent people that you could ever imagine listening to. Amazing. And one of the things he said in reading some, one of his books, he said, Israel would think about heaven and earth not as completely, two completely separate fears. I, I think that's how we look at it. There's heaven up there, and then there's earth down here. Well, what Israelites, what they thought of, now I'm telling you again, please stay with me. What Israelites thought of, they said that heaven is this place where God dwells, but heaven and earth were intertwined, they're interlocked. 
Because he said at the temple was the place where heaven actually invaded earth. And that's why people wanted to go there. That's where God's presence was. It wasn't two separate worlds. You went to the temple as an Israelite and you knew that's where the presence of God was. And here is a people, friends, Israelites, 2,000 years ago. As we get into this Christmas story, you need this as background. These were people that met there and are awaiting the day that Christ will be sent into the world, that God will reoccupy everything. There's a longing going on. There's a waiting. When will this happen? And they know everything centers on Jerusalem. Everything centers on this temple. When will it happen, God? Did you know this 400 years of silence? No written word, nothing from the prophets. What a dark time in history before the coming of Christ. And I wonder, how, how did people do with this? Did, were people able to really wait? They were. And any devout Jew, you know what they did? Three times a year, they had to trek into Jerusalem. Three times a year, they were there, a people that were waiting. They were anticipating something happening, looking, just as we as a people today are waiting for the second coming. They were waiting for the first coming. It's the same thing. It's no different. We get busy. We get tired. We get complacent. Apathy sets in. Ah, whatever. I'm going to live my life. When you look at those people and how they saw the temple, it was everything to them. And when you look at the life of Jesus, his relationship with the temple will be off the charts amazing. You see, the temple will ultimately get him killed. And if we understand the temple, it can change our lives today. And I want to take you, here's the story, here's the character. Are you ready for the character? The character's name is Simeon. If you have your Bibles, his story is found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. We are going to look at Simeon's song. And if you didn't hear me before, I'll say it again. This is a character. He's very obscure. There's not a lot in the text about his life. But enough that is there to change our lives. And his story starts out in verses 25 and 26. Seriously? Oh, I thought it, was, it wasn't letting me switch to the next slide. Luke 2, 25 and 26. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. If you were here last week, this is the new King James. This is the same word, Sadiq. This is a righteous man. Luke wants us to know that. Waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And here he is, this man Simeon. We, from what we can ascertain, he is an older man. And he is there in the temple, the place I told you before, that everybody is there and they're waiting and they're expecting something to happen. The temple is the place, friends, where heaven invades earth. The temple is the place where nobodies become somebodies. The temple is the place where you get your identity from God. The temple is the place where you get divine purpose. The temple is the place where people would hang out and they would wait to feel and see the presence of God. That's where the temple is. And and that's where this man is waiting. And when Mary and Joseph 
come into the temple courts with their baby Jesus, there's certain things that are going to happen as you look at the text. Because it goes on looking further. I'm going down through 27 to 35. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, Mary and Joseph, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Who is this man, Simeon? Why don't we have more facts about him? Why do we not have more details about his story? I want to know more about him. But there is enough because, you see, he didn't start a movement. He didn't do anything that was seemingly great. It doesn't look like he had a great resume. What did this guy really do? All he really does is wait. That's all he's doing in the story. He's waiting and expecting and anticipating that God will do something amazing in this world. Maybe seemingly, it seems on the outside like he's not an influential character, but he really is because he's waiting and he's trusting. What happens when things are dark and things are de- you're down? Can you wait with faith and patience and really trust that God is on the move in your life? Even though it doesn't look like it, can you really wait with faith that's what his story is saying to us today that's what he's speaking to us about do you ever wait for something how hard is it to wait is anybody really good at waiting in here I picture this guy who's waiting at the temple day after day you see you read this text and you go wow that's pretty cool Joseph and Mary come in I guess he knows that this is the this is the Messiah Can you imagine how many people came in and he's looking at people for days, for months, for years? I wonder if it's that guy over there. I I wonder if it's, I wonder. And he's looking and he's waiting. And then the moment actually comes to fruition when Jesus is brought in with these peasants, this impoverished couple. But we, friends, in our world, we are not good at waiting. Terrible. Did you know by the time you're 70 years old, by the time you are 70, you will have waited an average of three years for things. Whether it's you're waiting in a hospital, you know, a waiting room, whether you are waiting on hold on the phone, whether you're waiting at traffic lights. For, if you're a Jet fan, you're waiting much longer for things in life, which I am not. I told you last week, I am not a Jet fan anymore. Had to throw that in there. But we are a people that we wait. And you know the, you know the adage... Good things come to those that wait. I mean, think about those events in your life that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait. Whether it was you were getting married or a child is going to be born, right? Remember the excitement that is there and you can't wait for that moment? I picture this guy in the story, Simeon, like somebody, like you're waiting at your mailbox for an important letter. You're waiting for a tax refund check. You're waiting for something that's really... And he's every single day, he's looking, he's waiting. Is this the day? Is this going to be the day when it happens? 
But I have to give you a picture that can do more justice than my words. So I'm going to show you a very short video clip, and I have to set this up. This was, and I mentioned this some years ago, and it was too delicious not to, the pun was intended, too delicious not to say it, not to give you um, a picture of this. In, with my sociology students, there's an experiment that we talk about. It's called the marshmallow experiment. I have a couple of marshmallows uh, somewhere, and I put them in a plastic bag so they would not contaminate me, so I would not touch them with my skin, because these are bad. You should not eat them. Your kids should not eat them. They're bereft of any nutritional value. But they serve a good purpose for the sermon today. And in this marshmallow experiment, here's what happened. A researcher, this was done many years ago, a researcher would come in and they would, they would have little kids that were, the, that were there. Four years old, these little kids would come in. And the re- this is like cruel, but you, you have to love it. And the researcher would say to the little kid, as you're going to see, just so you understand what you're watching, the researcher is going to offer the child a marshmallow. If the child, you know, wants to take the marshmallow right then, they can. But the researcher will say, well, if you wait, I'll give you two marshmallows. So they're, going to, they're lying and saying they have to go run errands or whatever. Instant gratification. Can people wait? This is a longitudinal study where they're taking these kids that are four years old and they're studying them over the course of many years to see the decisions that they will make. Now, I have to tell you, I have a son who is three and a half years old. And what I am excited about is for his birthday, our present to him at four years old will be, I will put him through the marshmallow experiment, what you're going to watch. I can't wait for June to come. Without any further ado, Scott, if you would play that, please. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. <laughs> Torture. Gets better. Gets better. <laughs> I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Oh, it smells really
Good, right? Cute video. Does anybody want one of my marshmallows? Does anybody want one? You know I'm not giving it to you, even if you did. Really interesting, though, that experiment. And now in the longitudinal study, I have to tell you this. You know those kids that could actually wait score, two, on average, 210 points higher on their SATs. An average, those kids that could wait. Yep, that's why Jameson will endure this in the summer next year. Please do not tell him to wait. He can't have marshmallows, whatever those fruit snacks are. That's, what, that's his kryptonite. So that's what I'll use. But this experiment is wild, is it not? And there were other things in the experiment. But how hard is, a, is it for us really to wait? It really is. This is such a picture. They're little kids. But this is no different than what our lives are like as adult, adults in really waiting, in searching. And when you look at this story, as we get back to the story here, it's not about, you know what, I'll, I'll wait for a second. I should say this. I think in waiting, it's not do we get what we're actually waiting for in this life. It's who you become while you're waiting. Is it not? It's not, do I get, am I going to get all those things that I'm actually waiting for? No. It's what kind of person are you becoming as you are waiting for certain things in this world? I don't know what you're waiting for this morning. Are you waiting to find somebody to get, you know, a romantic relationship? Are you waiting for a job? Are you waiting for your financial situation to turn around? Are you waiting for the economy to turn around? Are you waiting for love to heal your marriage? What are you waiting for? What did you come in here this morning with? What are you carrying? What have you been praying to God about? What are you waiting on? I'm here to tell you that there is an enemy that is out there, and what he wants us to do is he throws the little marshmallow. Take the one marshmallow. Oh, take it. Oh, it'll be. Don't wait. What God has told you in your life, don't wait about the second coming, anything. God, we have an enemy, and what we need to do is be, as Pastor Joe talked about this morning, the spiritual armor, Ephesians 6. We need to realize there is an enemy that is out there, and he's looking to take us out. He roams around looking to take us out, and he tries to give us things that really will not satisfy us. God is saying, no, you need to wait, and you need to trust me. How long do you think Simeon waited? No idea. The text doesn't tell us. But we know this, that if he did not wait at the temple here for what happened, he would have missed out on the greatest moment of his life. This was the moment that he was created for. This is the moment that he was destined to be a part of. And what if he said one day, you know what? I'm not going to wait. Oh, man, he would have missed out, and we would not be talking about him this morning. Can you imagine going back to, I mean, looking here? Can you imagine somebody saying this to you? You're the parents now, Mary and Joseph. What are they told here? They're told wonderful news in the beginning. And then look at the second part. You know, parents said you're excited and somebody speaks that over your kid. Oh, wow, this is pretty amazing stuff. But then the second part, when he gives them the bad news, it's one of my favorite passages really in the Bible. When he talks to Mary, he says, a sword will pierce your heart as well, your soul. Got to run. Bye. Nice meeting you. Hey, have a great day. I've waited all these years for this to happen. Now I told you what I need to tell you. Great. I'll see you later. Here's this couple. What are they supposed to do with this? 
What are they supposed to do with all of this news that they have received? And no sooner does Simeon walk away that another character, a strange character, comes in another, a new person comes on the scene and moving ahead in the story, you see the character here, this woman, her name is Anna. And this is what the text says in 3738. There's a woman who, it's haunting and yet it's beautiful. These are actually songs. The song of Simeon that we just read. And this is the song of a woman named Anna. This woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple. Somebody else that is a waiter. That's the title of the sermon. I'm not talking about a waiter in a restaurant. I'm talking about people that wait. Two people that have waited. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And the actual, the, the best translation, as I was looking this up, the best reading of Luke's text here, is she lived another 84 years as a widow. How many women would have been bitter and hopeless in that day? When you were a widow in that day, you had nothing. Here is a woman that is still waiting and expecting something great to happen. She wants to just be a part of it. Both of them. Simeon and Anna, they just want to be a part of what God is doing. His move, as he moves in that temple, they just want to be there. They want to have their place in that. And it's important to note, too, about when you were talking about the temple here, you know the temple was not just the center of worship in that day. You see, the temple was the center also of their banking system. All debts, Rome kept all the debts that the Jewish people had, they would be housed here in Jerusalem, in the temple. And they oppressed the people and they taxed them. And if they wanted to imprison people, they could do that. They would go into the temple and they would gather those records. They could get all those records. Why do you think at times in history, in Jewish history, there were people that went into the temple, you know what the first thing was that they did? They would burn all of those records and they were angry at what had happened. And why am I telling you that? Because there is righteous anger when Jesus comes on the scene. Because when Jesus goes into the temple, it's not that heaven has invaded earth. It's that earth has invaded heaven. Because this is the place where God dwells. And it's become corrupt. And that's why Jesus, in his relationship with the temple, has to take it head on. What does he say? He says some pretty amazing things about the temple. Tear down the temple and what will happen in three days? It will be rebuilt again. And the disciples, they didn't fully understand what he was saying. He told them, I am the temple. What was he saying? I have come. That would, when, God was, when God is up in heaven, yeah, he was up in it, but now God has come to earth. The two have become one. There is a great invasion. This is D-Day, and I'm here, and I'm here to make everything right. It starts with me. That's what's going on. That's wonderful in this story. And he preaches that, and ultimately, it will get him killed. Staggering claims. He's pointing to himself that the temple represented something, but the temple was temporary. It was just a temporary quarters for God. That he's saying, I am the one that will have the power and the glory. And that it will branch out and it will move. And it will not just start with me and end with me. It starts with me and then it moves out among the disciples. And it goes further. It moves forward. That's when Simon becomes Peter. It's when Saul becomes Paul. It's when nobody's become somebody's. It's, it's when it affects our lives today. Not just back then, it affects us. This is a great movement and nobody saw it coming. 
But two people did. Simeon and Anna, these obscure people that we don't talk about. They saw because they waited and they trusted in the midst of difficult circumstances. City on a hill, will you wait? Will you wait for what God, has call, what God is calling that's going to come to fruition in your life? Will you wait? Will you have that faith? Mary and Joseph think they're coming into the temple at Jerusalem to meet God. Little do they know they are going to leave with God. Do you ever think about that? Look at this story. They think they're going to meet God. They're leaving with the Son of God. They're actually leaving with God. God has gotten outside of the temple. Something, friends, was happening 2,000 years ago when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. God is sending a message, and he's sending it to you today. Extraordinary things can happen because what Christ did on that cross. Extraordinary things that the the power of God would be manifest in our lives today, and it goes forward as we leave this place today, that we become the agents of change. We don't have to go to a place. You don't have to sit here in in this church that God can use you and your life in a dynamic way. Oh, but we have been robbed. We need a new map, friends. We need a paradigm shift. Ever watch that show? I was thinking about it. House Hunters is a show. Megan watches these shows, and I get sucked in once in a while. Not a bad, it's a good, a decent show, and there's one, House Hunters International. I was thinking about it during the week. How many of you watch that show? All right, you should be doing something else more spiritual, but just thought I'd throw that out there. And on that show, if you don't know the show, they, they pick three homes, right? And, of course, having a nice place to live, it's very important. And they, they pick three places, and you're, you're watching the whole show, and you're waiting. Which house will these people ultimately decide to live in? And you go through, and they drag it out, right? And you get to the end, like, is it going to be house A? Is it C? She was nicer, like the fireplace they had. Hey, had this. And you're going through it, and you get all into it. You get all sucked into the show. And you finally pick, and you're like, wow, interesting. And you analyze that. I was thinking about it because I look at this from a spiritual perspective. One day God said, the temple is only a temporary it's temporary housing for me, temporary quarters. And God looked and he searched and he said, where can I make my new house? Where's it going to be? Oh, and friends, he had some great choices because you see, there was a palace over here that this is where Herod lived. That's choice A. And there's another palace over here and this is where Caesar lived. And then over here though, friends, there is a little impoverished couple that have absolutely nothing. And they live in this little house. And God says, that's where I'm going to go. I'm not going to this palace. And I'm not going to that palace. I'm going to go right here. And I'm going to change the world through this couple, a 13 or 14-year-old woman, and this man who is a simple carpenter. I will use them to change the world. Through them, the Messiah will be born into this world. And everybody that's waiting, everybody that's watching will see it and their lives can be changed. Friends, your life can be changed from this today. Your life can be changed just by looking at the story and understanding what God did with this invasion. You know what it looks like? What does invasion look like? What does invasion look like for our world today? What does the invasion look like for us? 
It's when you go out on Christmas Eve morning and you're delivering food to people, that's an invasion. It's when you take your role seriously as a mother and father and you want to change your kids' lives, that's an invasion because it's spreading out and the life of Christ is moving forward. There's an invasion when you're at your job and you take, take your job seriously or maybe you're witnessing to other people at your job. That's part of the invasion. You are part of the great invasion. It didn't stop 2,000 years ago. You have a role just like Simeon and Anna. Will you take it seriously? Will you take your role seriously? Because the problem is many of us really aren't taking it seriously and we think that there's really nothing for us to... No, while you're waiting, while you're waiting, things are going to happen. You must trust. Don't lose the faith. Regardless of what you see out there, don't lose the faith. There's a great story. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the violinist uh, Itzhak Perlman. How many of you have heard of him before? Virtuoso one of the greatest violinists in the world. He pulls his Stradivarius violin out. He wows people. He amazes people. Something interesting happened. November 16th, 1995, he was at the Lincoln Center. Audience is there. The excitement is palpable. Everybody can't wait to listen to him. And what you need to know about Perlman, he, if you don't, the name too, Schindler's List, the most haunting, incredible piece from the soundtrack, from that score, he's the one who plays it. In the, oh, it's beautiful if you haven't listened to it before. So here is this man that everybody's waiting for. And he's, he, as a kid, he was stricken with polio. So watching him move out onto the stage, it was a very laborious process for him. He has braces on his legs and he has two crutches. So he's making his way out on the stage He gets to his seat, and there is his violin. And he picks up the violin, notches the violin under his chin, nods to the maestro, and he starts playing. And he starts playing beautiful music, friends. But then something goes awry as he's playing. Five minutes into this concert, one of the strings breaks on his violin. They said it sounded like a gunshot went off. Everybody in the audience heard it. Everybody knew, and everybody that's there in the audience is silent. What is he going to do? What is the great violinist going to do? And they're thinking, they would recount later on, many of them said they were figuring that either he would get up and move and get another violin, or somebody is going to bring a new violin to him. In their astonishment, in their amazement, Perlman closes his eyes, picks up the violin again, and starts playing. Now, if you know anything about the violin, you can't play a symphonic piece with three strings on your violin. He doesn't care, and he starts playing music, and he's modulating, and people are saying he's changing things in his mind, and he's working with things with just the three strings, and he doesn't care. And those people later on would say it was the most beautiful music that they ever listened to in their entire lives. Here is this man that said, whatever, it doesn't matter that I only have three strings. I will keep on playing, and he played, and he's at the end, he's, the, the audience again is silent, he wipes sweat from his brow, and after their reticence, they got on their feet, and they said it was the loudest standing ovation that anybody has ever gotten at Lincoln Center. Everybody there, the crowd was so excited at what they had been a part of there. And this is what, I want to read to you, look, this is what he said, this is what Perlman said. He smiled to the audience and he said, you know, 
Sometimes it is the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. How much music can you still make with what you have left? While you're waiting for whatever it is you're waiting for today, this Christmas season, what kind of music will your life make? What kind of music will your life make, City on a Hill? What kind of music will you make with your life? This is your one and only life. And the enemy wants to rob it from you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and take you out, and make you think that you don't have a part to play in the great drama. You have a role to play in this story, and don't you give up, and don't you give in. You wait on God. Whatever it is, you wait. going to share another story with you. I actually wasn't even planning on it. I changed my sermon at the last minute this morning with that. I just thought it was a beautiful story and it fits so well. I'll share it anyway. Why not? As we come to the table so you can see this and understand this. Billy Graham, he wrote a book a couple of years ago. And um, Billy Graham, is, he's in his 90s now. He's 90. He just turned 93 years old. And uh, Coming Home is the title of the book. Didn't read the whole book. He wrote it maybe seven or eight years ago, maybe six years, I don't know, something like that. And in the book, he talks about um, his wife passed away maybe, 2000, I think it's 2007. So she passed away a couple of years ago. And everybody knows Billy Graham, the name, all the amazing things that he's done as an evangelist for years, over, I mean, over half a century. I mean, a man, that, a man of character, a man that just epitomizes integrity. Well, his, his wife, Ruth, before she passed, it's, it's interesting. This is what's, I'll show you the picture. This is actually what's on Ruth Graham's tombstone. And what's so wild about this, I don't know if you can really see it. It says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> now, no, what, but here's the story. She was driving one day on the highway, and she, it, she was in like miles and miles of con, like just construction. She saw the signs everywhere. And then she felt like God was really speaking to her. She came to the end, and she saw the sign, and it said, end of construction. And she said, that's what our lives are like. We're, we're constantly under construction. And then there comes a day, there comes a time when it's over, and it's finished. May you live in light of the time that you have left. May you live in light of that. May you be moved by that. And I thank you that, I thank God, God, I thank you right now that you do have such patience with us. Lord, may, not, may nobody walk out of this place here today confused, depressed, condemned by their life. Lord, that's the evil one. We come against that. We come against any agreements people have made in their minds about how you see them. Lord, I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your love. Lord, I thank you that it's all about who we are becoming while we, tr while we truly wait. Lord, help us to see the big picture, Father. Help us to see. Lord, and I thank you that the temple was a temporary home. I thank you that what you did in Jesus Christ 
that he, you were pointing to him and that through that movement it branched out and for 2,000 years it's gone everywhere. It's gone all over the world and people right now are worshiping everywhere. Lord, help us to be those people that can change the game, change out there. May we not be robbed, Lord, of our destiny that you have for us as Christ followers. Lord, we thank you as we come to this table for your work on that cross. You said, Lord, you stre- your arms were outstretched. And you said, it is finished. It's our turn. It's, it's our turn. City on a hill, it's our turn. May we take the torch and move forward, Lord. Amen. I'm going to do something different this morning. I'm going to be playing a, I'm going to be playing a song for you. It's called While I'm Waiting. And some of you have heard it before. It's so appropriate for what we talked about. And as the song is playing, ushers, we are going to pass out the elements. But I just want, as you're coming up or you're sitting there, just reflect on the song as you come to the table. You can play that, please. Take 
Take 